all of God's servants eventually come to the end of life and have to hand off the torch to those younger leaders who will take their place. In 2 Timothy, Paul essentially does this, handing the torch to young Timothy. And in chapter 14, he gives a, a charge to Timothy to be faithful to his ministry since he himself is ready to depart and to go and be with Christ, having fought the good fight and run the race of the Christian life, he's, he's now about to leave Timothy to this ministry. This is similar to what we have in the end of Joshua here. In the last two chapters, in chapter 23 and 24, we have Joshua's addresses, his charges, his messages to the leaders of Israel as he is ready to depart and as he says, go the way of all the earth. At this point, Joshua is very old. It says in chapter 24, verse 29, that he died after these things, being 110 years old. And so here, shortly before that, he's passing the torch. He's giving a final charge. God had given rest to Israel, it says here in chapter 23, verse 1. There were no surrounding enemies harassing them. They had peace now, and they were to complete the conquest. And so Joshua here, old and well advanced in years, summons them. It says in verse 2, all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers. It seems here that all Israel was represented by the leaders there. So Joshua is giving the charge to these leaders and they would go home and be faithful to this charge and teach the rest of the people to obey these words that Joshua gave to them. So as we look at this passage, I want all of you to listen up, but especially leaders. There are heads in this congregation, heads of households, fathers, husbands, there are elders, there are deacons. All Israel must listen to this message. All the church must listen to this message, but especially those who are in leadership who take this torch from Joshua and God's leaders throughout the ages. The first charge to Israel's leaders here comes to us in three parts. Number one, God's work on behalf of his people. Number two, God's command against worldliness and idolatry. And number three, God's faithfulness in blessing and judgment. Number one here, we see in Joshua's charge, God's work on behalf of his people. This is verse three down to verse five. It says here, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. The first thing Joshua emphasizes to them is the work God has done for them and will do for them. The provision they have in God for this task of completing the conquest. And they've already observed God's work in the past. And this is the foundation for their work in the future. If you're learning a job, maybe as an apprentice with a manager, 
and your manager wants you to step out and move into a new area, a new task. You need training and preparation. You need to know you have resources available and that you have your manager there to guide you. This is essentially what God does here. He's pushing them to go out into this new frontier, to finish the conquest, and knowing that they have God with him, with them, and they have all the resources that they need. So Joshua tells them to look back at what God has done. Look at the inheritance before them and trust God to push the nations back. Verse 3, he's telling them to look back. He says, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. God had already worked wonderfully on their behalf. He fought for them. He brought them into the land. We saw this in the first 12 chapters of Joshua. It was not their own strength, their own weapons, their own work that brought them in and gave them victory. It was God working for their sake, giving them his almighty help. We saw Jericho fall. And that was all of God. All the people did was walk around that city and blow some trumpets and shout. God made the walls fall down. We saw they could not take eye without God's presence in chapter 7 and 8. But with him, they took eye and Bethel. God attended their battles with powerful hail from heaven. And he stopped the sun on their behalf. He defeated 31 kings before them. And they were witnesses of these things. You have seen, Joshua says. They could not deny that the Lord God had fought for them. Verses 9 to 10, if you look there quickly, they make the same point. He says, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. God was there in his supernatural help so that, miraculously, a few of them, a weak and small nation, drove out great and strong nations, putting flight to thousands with one or a hundred. So, Joshua tells them to look back at God's work in the past. And then he also tells them to look to their inheritance in verse 4. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. Joshua had allotted to them all their territories in Canaan. God had already driven out the large part of the Canaanites in these areas. But there was still some that remained. There was part of the conquest that was over, part of the conquest that they needed to finish. And so they were to look at all that land, look at the outer boundaries of it, and know that God would give them that part of their inheritance as well and continue fighting to possess it. They were to also look forward to God's work. Verse 5, it says, The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. These are promises that God would be with them, that God would help them find the victory. God will push them back. You shall possess the land. With God, all things are possible. 
God's promises, as we said before, are facts. They're a done deal. We saw his faithfulness already up to this point. In chapter 21, 45, it said, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord your God made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so likewise with this promise, this would come to pass. If they trusted in the Lord God, he would push out their enemies. So Joshua here in this first section is giving them great encouragement for their mission to complete the conquest and inherit the whole land allotted to them. They could look back and see the work of God fighting for them. Look forward to the full inheritance God gave to them, knowing he would continue to fight for them and drive out the inhabitants in his faithfulness. These things were sure, guaranteed by God. This book has repeatedly called us to faith in God's grace and faithfulness. We so easily lose heart in the Christian life. We lose sight of God's power. We so easily begin to think the fight against sin, the mission of the church, and the accomplishment of all God's purposes are somehow futile. Or perhaps we lose sight of any vision of victory whatsoever in the Christian life. We know that there are false visions of victory, false theologies, the the kind of theology that says Christians can get to a point where there's no fight anymore, no fight against sin, you're, you're perfect, you reach this higher plane where it's just constant holiness, constant communion with God, this sort of perfectionism, that's a false vision of victory. There's a kind of theology that says the life of Faith is one of unhindered prosperity, health and riches. That prosperity gospel is also a false vision of victory. There's the kind of theology that says that all people really want to be friends with Jesus. That that denies the cross and the suffering of the Christian life. Whether through seeker sensitivity or an over-realized eschatology. These false visions... Do not take into account the reality of the continued presence of sin in every believer's life. The suffering and affliction that's part and parcel of life on this earth. And especially so for Christians who need to take up their cross. And it denies the sober truth that many still will walk on the broad road that leads to destruction. Not all people will be saved. But friends, there is a real vision of victory we must not lose. We're not to become hopeless, helpless, spiritual Eeyores. We need to avoid becoming pessimistic, perhaps escapist or retreatist. There are some people like this who see the world as so evil, things are so bad, I'm just going to buy my land and, and get a bunker and sort of hide out and Wait for Jesus to come like my rescue helicopter and take me away from this evil world. Well, that that denies the mission we have in this world, doesn't it? There's the sort of hyper-Calvinist doctrine where we see ourselves as, as so sinful, so lost, so helpless. We can do nothing. We need to just wait for God to save us somehow. And God will choose to save others if, if he so wills. But we'll just sit here and wait with our little pity party. (laughs) There's also kind of a mediocre 
Christianity that goes around. I, I like this book that Janelle is reading right now with Heidi, and it talks about mediocre motherhood, kind of this culture of parenting that we get into where, oh, my kids are, are so sinful, and I, I'm just, I'm tired all the time, and we, we get into this mode of just affirming each other in our mediocrity, in having no joy, no victory, no, no encouragement in this task that God has blessed us with. The Christian life is not to be like that. There is real victory, hope, and advancement in God. Why is that? Well, because we are not on our own. You see, just like it was with Joshua and his people of Israel, they were not on their own. If they were left to their own devices, yes, things would be hopeless. Things would be futile. But God was there. God was working. And so he continues to work in us, in this world that he's given to us to make disciples in. We need to look back like the people of Israel and remember the work of Christ that we have seen, that we are witnesses of. We know that Christ has come. He's destroyed the enemy of sin and death and spiritual evil upon the cross. He's done a mighty work. He's fought for us. We can sing praise the one who climbed the hill, stormed the very gates of hell, went to war with death itself to win my soul. We've experienced the power of God's salvation and we can look forward to the inheritance that God has already promised us in Christ, of which we have the large part already by the down payment of the Spirit of God who lives in us to give us victory through Christ Jesus. And we need to know that God will fight for His own. If He has saved us, if He has sent His only Son to die for us, surely He is with us, He is for us, he will keep us and continue to preserve us with his love. And so given these gospel realities, we are encouraged in our task as well. Just as the Israelites were encouraged in their mission. Though our sins sometimes seem so powerful, like Canaanites in the hill country with chariots of iron, with God we shall do valiantly. Though even the daily faithfulness of Raising children in a Christ-like way and doing our work to the glory of God seems like a giant to conquer sometimes. Well, God allowed Caleb to go into Hebron and destroy the Anakim. We have a God who slays giants. Through, though the sufferings, though the trials, though the mistakes of life are sometimes like troublesome Gibeonites, God can even use those for our good. Though the beliefs and idolatry ideologies of the world look like the thick walls of Jericho, we have a God who can tear down those strongholds by the power of the gospel. Though the unbelieving nations look like coalitions of kings rising against Christ, we have a God who conquers kings and kingdoms. So friends, remember this, that you, you live in a network of grace. God has done a work on our behalf he continues to do a work with us and in us. And so we can be encouraged to go forward in our mission. 
Number two here, we see Joshua commanding the people against wickedness and idolatry. In this second section, verses 6 to 12, 6 to 13 rather, Joshua commands the people to hold fast to God and not turn away to certain pitfalls. There is a positive side to what he says here, positive commands that they needed to hear as they lived in Canaan and pushed out the outer boundaries. Verse 6 gives us one of them that they were to keep the word of God. He says, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. God had given them a guide in his word given to Moses. This law, they were to keep and do it and be very strong in doing so. In the same way, we as Christians, we have, we have more of God's word. We have the whole completed word of God. And this is our guide where to pay careful attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place and let it equip us for every good work. This is, as it were, the balance beam that we stand on. If we fall to the right or to the left, we fall into pitfalls. He gives us this word so that following it, we can avoid the obstacles that come to us in the Christian life. It is the only way to be faithful to God, to follow his word. All other ground is sinking sand. The opinions of others and the common teachings of man are like thin ice that seems stable at first, but you go out and then you hear the cracks and then it gives way. Rather, we're called to stand upon the sure foundation of God's only word. We're called to be hearers and doers of this word. God made it clear at the beginning of Joshua that it was through meditation on the law and keeping closely to it that he would have success in his mission. And Joshua found this to be true throughout his whole life up until 110 years old. And so he gave them this charge as well to follow the word of God. Secondly, he says here to cling to the Lord. Look at verse 8. It says, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. They were to hold fast to God, to cleave to him as that husband and wife relationship in Genesis 2, to hold fast to each other. This is how we're to relate to God, to cling to him, to have fellowship and loyalty and dependence upon him as Ruth clung to Naomi as a snail clings to a rock or a fish tank, only a tight grip on Christ can ensure our spiritual success because Christ himself is our source of life and truth and grace and help. As he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. A close connection or dynamic relationship with God is what we need. He also tells them here to love the Lord their God in verse 11. He says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Literally here, it's something like very watching over your souls to love the Lord your God. Very much being careful to, to watch over our very life, our very soul here. To love the Lord 
our God. We need to pay careful attention to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life to watch our souls. This is what God asks of us ultimately is simply to love him, to love him. This is what Christ says in John 15 to his disciples as well. He says, abide in my love. Love me and obey my commandments. Abide in me. Just as I have loved you, abide in my love. Because our souls want so often to go and love other things in the place of Christ. Other people, other things. And so we need to carefully watch over them. So that we would remain in that connection to Christ. And not lose our first love as the church of Ephesus did. Just as faithfulness in marriage is about really just receiving and giving love. It's the same in our relationship with God. It's about receiving the love of God and giving him our love, our loyalty, our admiration, our affection. All these things were especially important to the Israelites in Canaan. And we could say especially important to Christians in the world. Because in this place where God's kingdom has begun and is growing but is not totally fulfilled, there are still dangers to avoid. There are snares to be cautious of. And so Joshua warns us as well that we may apply these negative commands as well. There's a negative side here, a warning. He says in verse 7, to not mix with the nations. He says that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you. And then in verse 12, he elaborates, he says, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, that's what it would look like to mix with these nations. We know that there were still Canaanites dwelling among the people of Israel. The temptation would be to not complete the conquest, not devote these people to destruction and drive them out, but rather to cling to them, to mingle with them, to make marriages and associate with them. But because these Canaanites were so wicked and idolatrous, they would inevitably taint the pure people of God if they were allowed to continue there. Like dirt mixed in with pure white snow makes it all mucky and messy. This would lead them to turn away from God. Like Solomon's many wives made his heart turn from the Lord. Paul even tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, obviously, we have to apply this a bit differently than Israel. God at that time had separated one ethnic nation out as his special possession. Now the gospel is going to all nations. It's it's not that we're, we're to only mix with our nation. Rather, we're to go to all nations. But there's really only two kinds of people in this world. People who love Christ and people who don't. Believers and unbelievers. And we need to be careful in our interactions with the world that we do not take on their manner of 
thinking and living because we are in the world, but we are not to be of it. Obviously here, a very practical command would be that a Christian should never marry a non-Christian. Young people, you need to listen especially to this. Do not think at all for one moment about dating someone who is not a Christian. If you're going to follow Christ, you want someone beside you who is also following Christ, that your faith may not be hindered. Do not date someone unless you see visible fruit of godliness, a love for the word of God, a life of prayer, a desire to share the gospel, a faithful attendance at church. Those are visible things you can see that show you someone is really godly. The temptation is always to lower our standards, to take on the manner of this world, to do what they think and, and uh, do what they do and think what they think. But Christians are called to be a distinct culture within the culture. And so we're not to mix with the nations, not to mingle and associate with unbelievers. And we're also not to turn to idols. This is the second negative command he gives really here. Verse 7b, he says, Do not make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. This is a call to avoid idolatry, which is linked to the command to not mix with the nations because the nations had their own religion. They had their own false gods they had invented. And the Israelites were not to worship them, not to love them, not to give their time and energy to them, to serve them, to swear by them, or even take their names upon their lips, which would give them legitimacy. Now, we are not regularly tempted to bow down to statues like they were, though we do occasionally see statues of Buddha in the Chinese restaurants or Vietnamese places. But our idols are usually things that we cling to and love and serve other than the true God that are not so obvious. But there are surface idols and root idols that we may also love and serve. Surface idols are things like money, food, children, spouses, smartphones, social media, video games, alcohol, the couch, whatever we love more than God and what prevents us from serving Him. These are the surface idols and really we go to them in order to satisfy deeper longings deeper idols of the self, disordered desires that ultimately serve self rather than God or others. These things can be things like power or influence, approval or appreciation, emotional and physical comfort, security, control of our environment and circumstances. We go to surface idols in order to satisfy these deeper idols of the self-life. St. Augustine called these things disordered loves. When we love other things, 
rather than God's, whom we are called to love here. People go to idols for different reasons. <clears throat> you think of two men who are alcoholics. Well, they may have very different heart idols that leads them to that surface idol. One may go there because he feels rejected and he deserves more affection and love and he drowns his sorrows in the drink. Another feels he works hard and he's, he's so stressed and he feels he deserves to just unwind and relax and he goes to beer to satisfy that longing. And before you know it, he's addicted and that rules his life. Different motivations, but the same idol. We all struggle in various ways, but we're all tempted to go after other things to satisfy the longings of our hearts. But we find if we go down that path, we become enslaved. We end up serving those gods, enslaved to the momentary fading pleasures that they give until we move on to the next one or a more extreme form of that one. Joshua knew that even the people of God were still susceptible to this worldliness and idolatry. And so he warned them not to go down that path, but rather the solution here is to cling to God, to love him, to put your love and affection, your fidelity, your loyalty in the right place, holding fast to God's word, clinging to him, loving him because he has loved us. But Joshua here is very clear about the consequences of spiritual infidelity, of turning to the gods and ways of this world. Number one, he says here, there would be a loss of God's powerful presence if they turned to other gods. Verse 13a, it says, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. This foresees a time when having begun to mingle with these nations, they would now long to be free from those nations. But God at that point will have abandoned them. If they chose to have the nations among them, God would give them up to that choice. And just as with God all things are possible, without God all things would prove to be futile. As we saw even in this book already, in the episode with Ai, in chapter 7, when the people had angered God by the sin in their midst, he abandoned them in the fight. And they had no victory in what should have been, by all accounts, an easy fight, easy victory. If someone abandons Christ, they should not be surprised to find themselves with no spiritual power. If we let ourselves get mixed in with worldliness and idolatry and not confessing and repenting of these things, we should not be surprised that the church has no power for its mission. God gives strong support to those whose hearts are fully his. Joshua warns us about that danger. He also warns us about snares and pains to come in verse 13b. He says, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. What we actually find when we give in to idolatry 
is that that union creates a painful snare. It's a snare and trap. It's, it's deceitful. These things take us off guard because they promise so much, but then they give us nothing. The words here used of snares were those used to capture birds. Unsuspectingly, a bird would fly into one of these cages and then find that it could no longer fly away. That's what happens when we get enslaved to idols. And our sins and idols actually become painful to us. They are whips and pricks. The shame and guilt of sin stings. The destruction and disorder that they bring into our own life and the lives of others around us bites at us. 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10 says this about greed, about the love of money, this great idol, even today. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you desire to be rich? Desire to have wealth and money? Are you giving your love to money? Watch out. Because this is how people abandon the faith. They turn away from Christ and they go on a path to everlasting destruction. Proverbs 5 talks about sexual immorality in this way. It says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Another common idol, but what does it bring? It brings pain. It brings a sword to our souls. Destruction. Sin promises more than it can give and takes us further than we ever wanted to go. Joshua warned them of this. There would be snares and pains if they let the world mingle in with them and they turned to the idols of the nations. Thirdly here, he warns them about a loss of inheritance and death in verse 13c. He says, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Ultimately, the final result of turning away from the Lord God into this idolatry would be a loss of their inheritance and God's judgment of death upon them. They would perish, be taken away from the land of Canaan. Just as God gave them that land so graciously, he could also take it away. Just as he preserved their lives in the midst of their enemies, he could also allow their enemies to put them to death. And sadly, we know the people of Israel largely turned away from the Lord. And they did perish. And they were exiled from the land. All but a, but a little remnant survived that judgment. They were taken out of the good land that God had given them. The nations continually harassed them and overpowered them. And they were ultimately conquered and taken away. They lost their inheritance. And my friends, we should not be deceived either. If we turn our backs on Christ, what is left for us ultimately but destruction forever? Death and a loss of our crown. 
a loss of our inheritance in Christ. If we apostatize, if we choose to turn away from Christ, we choose to make ourselves God's enemies. And to be an enemy of God is to be condemned to the punishment of everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, as 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says. If Jesus is the way and no one comes to the Father except through him, we turn away from that way. We have no other way into heaven. So Joshua would warn us of these great dangers. There's great encouragement here, but also a warning in this charge of Joshua. It's like, it's like a letter of the New Testament, like 1 John. 1 John is a wonderful letter. It gives us great encouragements, but it also warns us. It tells us about the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that is available to us. We confess our sins. We turn to our advocate. We have propitiation for our sins. Christ died on our behalf to bring us into glory. He tells us of the overcoming power of faith, that with faith there is victory over the world. But he also warns us not to love the world and to keep ourselves from idols, but rather to keep God's commandments, to abide in his love, to abide in him, so that we would not shrink back at his coming. Now at the end of this address, Joshua makes one final point with which is very striking and which we should pay careful attention to. God's faithfulness in blessing and in judgment. Here, verse 14, Joshua reiterates that he's about to die. He's about to go the way of all the earth. This is the way of all the earth. As Ray Comfort says, 10 out of 10 people die, right? Everyone on earth eventually goes this way. But Joshua has taken his place in line and he's ready to go. And so he's giving these final words and he gives us this powerful word about God's faithfulness here. He says, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. He reminds them of this truth we saw in chapter 2145, God's faithfulness to bless them, to give them this land as he had promised. God did not lie. He remained faithful. He, he was truthful. He gave them this blessing, this good land. <coughs> but here at this point, he does not simply remind them of God's faithfulness to warm their hearts, but rather to warn their hearts. Because as he continues in verse 15, he says, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. What is his point here? Just as God is faithful to bless, 
He is also faithful to curse, to judge, to avenge, to pour out his wrath. God has both good and evil in his storehouse. And depending on where you stand with him, you can have either shower down upon you. If God is a God who says he will do something and he always does it, if God is faithful, if God never lies, then he will surely bless those who come to him in faith. But he will also surely curse those who reject him and go after idols. Do you see the power of this point? God is a faithful God. We know that throughout scripture. And that means that he's faithful in judgment as well as blessing. We may be tempted to relegate this truth to the Old Testament. Indeed, here we see some features of the Old Covenant. Even as we looked at this morning, the the Old Covenant contrasted with the New Covenant. If they were disobedient to anything in this covenant, they were promised immediate curses. There, There were those blessings and curses of the Old Covenant. But we know that all of them sinned, and all of us have sinned. We, we've all fallen under the curse. And it is for this reason that Jesus came to redeem us, by taking the curse for us in our place. But friends, that, that precious gospel truth does not mean that we can take the grace of God in vain, and then turn and walk away from Christ and expect to be saved in the end. When Christ saves us, that salvation comes with a call to follow him. And as surely as Christ promises to save all those who call upon his name, he also promises judgment to those who forsake him. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 is one of these strong warnings, even in the New Testament, about turning away from Christ. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, do not take that passage in the wrong way. This is not talking about a a genuine believer who still finds themselves sinning at times, turning to idols at times, but confessing and repenting. This is speaking of someone who turns away from Christ, who apostatizes. But if you go that direction, you need to understand God's promises of judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Do you think God is lying when he says that? Friends, we need to take this seriously. If we turn away from our covenant Lord, our precious Lord Jesus Christ, then we no longer have a portion in him. We no longer have the salvation that he provides. So you, even after pledging allegiance to Christ, if you turn away from him, 
you will lose your crown of righteousness and your passport to heaven. You do not have an inheritance in God. We spoke of the city of refuge in chapter 20. And here, that illustration is helpful as well. As surely as God is faithful, if you stay inside of Christ as your city of refuge, you are safe. But if you once step outside of Christ, God will surely avenge your blood. God is faithful in blessing, but also in judgment. Friends, as we conclude here, if you're a Christian, I would remind you from this passage that you swim in a sea of grace. It is all around you. You cannot ignore it. You are witnesses yourselves to the grace of God, God's work on your behalf in Jesus Christ, coming to this world, dying on your behalf on the cross, being raised powerfully from the dead. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have this network of grace around you. Though you cannot live for Christ on your own, you have Christ with you. And so you need to know you can fulfill all that God has given you to do. You're to have hope. You're to go forward into your mission knowing God's work on your behalf. But in addition to being in a sea of grace, well, in that sea, there are naval mines. You know, in the Black Sea right now, there are mines placed there by the Ukrainians so that when the Russians hit them, their ships would explode. Likewise, we're, we're in a sea of grace. It's all around us, but, but there are mines. There are dangers, the dangers of sin, worldliness, and idolatry all around. But friends, God has saved you by the precious blood of His Son to be a holy people. And so you must keep His word. You must hold fast to Christ, cling to Him, love the Lord your God, and be very careful to do so. You must see through the deceptiveness of sin and avoid the snares and pains of surface and root idols. You must root out all the disordered loves out of your life. And the way you do that, friends, is to continue coming to the source of God's love. To come back under the cross, to stare at the cross, to live under the cross until, like the song says, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. When you see what Christ has done for you, you can return in love for him. As Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you turn from the love of Christ, then you will be forced out of heaven. You will perish in your sins. You will suffer eternal punishment away from his glorious presence. But why would you ever turn away from such marvelous love in our Lord Jesus Christ? Love him as he has loved you. And friends, if you do not yet know Christ, though you may feel like a Canaanite outside of these Israelites, you need to know that you can enter into the family of God as well. That Christ stands as a ready Savior, willing, 
welcoming sinners to come to Him, receive His grace by faith, by trusting in Christ, trusting that He died for sinners, and that you need His forgiveness and transformation. But friends, in in turning to Christ, in trusting in Christ, you also must turn from your idols. You must turn away from idols to the true and living God. You must come to the one who is himself the fountain of living water. There was that Samaritan woman who was going after husband and husband and, and man after man to satisfy her longings. Jesus tells her, come to me, I'll give you living water and you will thirst no more. You're to come to Christ, sacrifice your idols before him and come to him as the only savior and the one Lord who is worth serving. Let's pray.